Well, if you've got one of those bulletin note sheets this morning, you you realize that we're going to a different text this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16. I had a a bit of a busier end of the week than normal, and and I just had to kind of adjust plans kind of early Saturday morning and and decided to come and preach something a little different here. So we're going to be in in Luke, just kind of a one-time... break from Matthew, and then we'll be back to um, Matthew chapter 16. Um, But right now, we're going to look at Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. And I called the message this morning, I called it Unanswered Prayers in Hell. Unanswered Prayers in Hell. Our, Our text for this morning really is a frightful one. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus, one of the fullest pictures in the New Testament and really in all of Scripture on hell, likely one of Jesus' severest warnings about hell. And so let's read the text so that it's in our minds here this morning as we begin, again, Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, or in Hades, Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Again, I called this sermon Unanswered Prayers in Hell because in hell the rich man makes two requests and both of them are denied. John MacArthur called his message on this text a testimony of one surprised to be in hell. And he also said there, there would be a lot of titles to this section. There, let, me, let me quote that again. There would be a lot of ways to title this section. Could be called The Great Reversal. It could be called A Reluctant Witness from Hell. Could be called How to Think You're Going to Heaven 
and end up in hell. Steve Lawson called a sermon on this text, Five Seconds After You Die. And another time that he preached it, he called it, Two Men, Two Deaths, Two Destinies. John Bunyan published a sermon on this text in 1658, and he called it, A Few Sighs from Hell. And his other title for it, as Puritans are are wont to do, it was, The Groans of a Damned Soul. And I tell you this to begin because it, it begins to introduce the weightiness of this passage, these titles. Jesus taught this parable as a warning to the Pharisees, and we could put the warning in the words of verse 28, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. Jesus had taught his parable of the unjust steward just before this in Luke 16, verses 1 to 10. And that parable, we've looked at it before, that parable teaches us to prepare for our eternal future. And we ought to prepare for heaven by wisely using our earthly resources according to that parable. But the Pharisees, they refused to accept this teaching. And Jesus concluded in in verse 13, if you just look back there, he says, No servant can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so this is what Jesus is teaching. He's he's teaching people to lay up treasures in heaven, to not serve money. And look at how the, the Pharisees respond in verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Literally, they turned up their noses at him. And the idea is here is that they scoffed at him, they ridiculed him, they sneered, they mocked Jesus because of his teaching. And so Jesus taught them to prepare for eternity by using their earthly resources to build up treasures in heaven, and they scoffed. You see, the the Pharisees, they thought that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. They thought that wealth showed that God regarded them as, as good in his sight, and so he was, he was blessing them because of their wealth, because of their goodness, blessing them with wealth. And so they highly esteemed wealth. In verse 15, Jesus goes on to say to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so the Pharisees, they justified themselves before men. They, they tried to look good, look righteous in men's eyes, but, but God knew their hearts. And so they looked good to men, but, but what is exalted among men is an abomination to God. Now, verses 16 to 18, as we're kind of getting to our text here, almost kind of seem to switch topics, but I, I don't think they really do. It's a little bit difficult to kind of get the connection there, but I I think what's going on is that the the Pharisees are abandoning the law and the prophets that they claim to believe. And those law, uh, the law and the prophets, those are the scriptures that pointed to Jesus and the kingdom. And then in verse 18, I think what Jesus is doing there is he's comparing what the Pharisees were doing with divorce. And so if you look at verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a divorced, uh, a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. 
And I think what's happening is that the Pharisees were divorcing the law and, and the prophets. They were, they were divorcing themselves away from Scripture and, and what Scripture pointed them to. And they're marrying themselves. They're committing themselves to wealth. And so they are committing spiritual adultery. And I think that's Jesus' point in verse 18. And then our parable deals with both of these topics. Our parable deals with wealth. And it deals with the law and the prophets. The rich man had five brothers, and and together the rich man and his five brothers are going to represent the Pharisees. And they used their wealth for themselves. They didn't prepare for eternity. And according to our, our text, they never repented. They didn't hear Moses and the prophets. And so the rich man and his brothers represent the Pharisees, and, and through the parable, Jesus is warning them that unless you repent and start preparing for eternity, you will also come into this place of torment. Now, there's one more thing that I want to just kind of deal with before we get right into this. Um, some people don't want to call this a parable, and the reason is, is that, that some people claim that because this is only a parable, we we can't use it to teach on hell. And so the argument goes something like this. Parables are symbols. Symbolic language, that's what parables are made up of. And and symbols aren't reality. And therefore, we can't use this passage to speak about the reality of hell. And so to answer that argument, some others have, have tried to argue that this actually isn't a parable at all. And they say what it is, is it's a true story, a true historical situation about a a real person named Lazarus and what happened when he died. And to argue that this isn't a parable, there's really two arguments. First of all, they say that this is the only parable where one of the characters is named. And that's true. It is the only parable where where one of the characters is named. And and there's a, a, a real name, they would say, means that it's a real historical situation. And then the second argument here is that one of... This is one of few parables that's not figurative like other parables. And and you'll kind of see this. You know, this parable has real people in it. Whereas most parables, they don't don't have people. They have seeds and they have fish and they have farming. And they kind of make a a more indirect comparison. So I just want to deal with this briefly. You already know that I believe it's a parable. I've said the word parable probably about 13, 14 times already. Um... This parable begins like so many other parables through the book of Luke. Um, The ESV and the New American Standard and and many other translations remove the Greek word a certain. But I want to just show you this, that many parables in Luke begin the same way. They begin like this, a certain man. And so I'll just give you these quickly. You don't have to turn there. But the parable of the Good Samaritan begins like this, a certain man. Now, again, the ESV leaves out the word certain, but... Uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. That was Luke 10.30. In Luke 14 and verse 16, I think this is the parable of the, the eschatological banquet. It's, it begins, a certain man once gave a great banquet and invited many. The parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the two sons, Luke 11, or 15.11 Jesus said, there was a certain man who had two sons. The parable of the unrighteous manager begins in Luke 16 and verse 1. There was a certain rich man who had a manager. The very same beginning as our 
parable has as well. Our parable again in verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And then after in Luke 19 and verse 12, the parable of the minas begins, he, Jesus said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And so many parables, really all of these other parables begin in the same way as our verses do. Now there's also at least a, a number of other parables in Luke that kind of function in the same way where, where people are used to represent the people that Jesus is teaching. And so we, maybe in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we've got a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And so there's, there's certain parables in Luke that, that make a more direct comparison. Most parables make an indirect comparison. They, they use fishing and farming and soil to represent spiritual truths about people and hearts and, and how God works in the world. But Luke has certain parables. Some of Luke's parables use people to represent people, and so they make a more direct comparison. And what's happening in our parable is that, that, that Luke uses, the Lord Jesus uses, a person in hell to represent people in hell. Now, other elements, I think, also point to the fact that this is a parable. In verse 22 of our text, the poor man is carried to heaven by angels. Body, it seems like body and all. Maybe his body's not there. But um, he's carried by angels. No other passage in Scripture that we know of teaches this. The poor man goes to Abraham's bosom, or Abraham's side in the ESV. And nowhere else in, is heaven described in that way. And I don't think that we should understand Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side as a literal place kind of separate from heaven. I think it's just a parabolic picture. Now in Hades, the rich man is able to, to see into heaven. And he's able to make demands of Lazarus and Abraham. And, and people in hell aren't going to be able to bother the saints. And so I think all of these elements kind of point us to the fact that this is a parable. This is, these are figurative elements that are, are typical of parables. And they're designed to make a point. And they're not necessarily literal historical facts, but they do picture the literal reality of hell. Now, the fact that one of these men in this parable has a name, I, I don't think necessarily means that it, it can't possibly be a parable. Jesus could have named all of the characters in his parables if he wanted to. And I think there's going to be something a little bit significant about the name that we'll get to later. But here's what's important. The parable represents something. All parables represent something. All parables teach a spiritual truth. And so they represent something that's real and something that's true. And this story is designed to teach us something about hell or something about Hades. And it's a warning for people who ridicule the idea of preparing for eternity. And nothing then is lost by recognizing that this is a parable. Nothing is lost. This is a warning to those who love riches. And indirectly, it's an encouragement to us. Lazarus represents a disciple of Jesus Christ. And his miserable earthly estate is reversed in eternity. I love verse 25. Now he is comforted here. And this passage also teaches us the power of the word of God. 
the seriousness of gospel ministry, and again, the reality of hell. And even just the soberness of this passage is designed to have an effect on our lives. Now we'll look at the two scenes we're going to see before death and after death, and then we're going to see the two requests. And so I'll give you the outline now, and then we'll, we'll kind of get into it here. First of all, we're going to look at the situation before death in verses 19 and 20. And then we're going to switch over and we're going to see the situation after death in verses 22 and 23. And then we're going to see the supplications from hell and there's going to be two of these. First of all, in verses 24 to 26, there's going to be the request for relief. And then in verses 27 to 31, we're going to see the request for relatives. And so we've got the two supplications from hell, the request for relief and then the request for relatives. And so let's begin then and let's look at the situation before death. In this parable that Jesus gives, this story that that he has made up to make this spiritual point to the Pharisees. We see the situation before death in verses 19 to 21. It says there was a rich man or a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now this certain man was rich and the Puritans called this man dives after the the Latin word for rich and so we could call him dives if we wanted. Now the fact that he was rich would would have made him exalted among men. The Pharisees would have assumed that he was righteous and therefore he was blessed by God with his riches. And he dressed in purple the color of royalty. The color of royalty. The, the purple dye of that day came from seashells, from marine snails, and it was a labor intensive to harvest these things and to make this special purple dye that the royalty loved to wear. The New American Standard and Legacy Bible translates it that he habitually dressed in this way. This wasn't just for special occasions. He, he constantly dressed in purple. And again, this was a status symbol of the day. You, you just look at this man and you go, now there is a rich man who has got everything. He also habitually dressed in fine linen. Now fine linen was the most delicate and most expensive fabric known to the ancient world. It came from Egypt, and it was typically used for undergarments. And so he had these really nice, comfortable undergarments. And he was, he was well-dressed. He was comfortable. Well, what else do we know about this man? Well, he feasted sumptuously every day. How does that sound to you? Feasted sumptuously every day. You know, when I, when I think about it, I was thinking, I'm glad that this is early in the service at this point, because otherwise you guys would be already thinking about lunch. But he feasted sumptuously every day. Literally, he was rejoicing. He was celebrating. The verb there means to be merry, to rejoice. And it was often used of feasting and and celebrating. In Luke 15, 23, the the word is translated celebrate, where in the parable of the two sons, the, the father says, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. And so there's our word. And so he he feasted sumptuously. He feasted sumptuously. The New American Standard says, in splendor. And so I think the idea here is that we could think of a lavish party. 
Not just from time to time. The text says every day. Every day this man enjoyed a lavish party. Every single day of the week. Now in verse 20, we meet another character. And this man is in the exact opposite position. He's poor. That word means that he was dependent on others for support. He was a beggar. And he was laid at the rich man's gate. He didn't lay there. He was laid there. And so perhaps we're meant to think that he was paralyzed. Maybe his sores were bed sores because he he couldn't move himself. We don't know for sure. But somebody dumped him there. Somebody left him and laid him at the rich man's gate, probably with the hope that the rich man would, would help this guy out. And he was covered with sores. And verse 21 tells us that he desired to be fed. He was desiring, is maybe the way that we would translate this. There's this ongoing aspect here of the present tense. He was, he was desiring to be fed. He wanted to be fed, and that continued as, as he was going. He was, he was hungry. And even the crumbs would have been good enough. The, the, the super rich in those days, apparently before napkins, before towels, they would wipe their hands on bread and throw it under the table. You know, I, 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 probably not the kind of bread that you're picturing in your mind, but they would, they would use bread as napkins and they would, they would throw it under the table. Now, if you look back at verse 21 and look at how it says there, moreover, in verse 21, it, it gets this, gives us the sense here that it's going to get worse from here. There's more to this. And, and here come the dogs. Now, again, we've talked about dogs before. They're unclean. They're scavengers. They're nasty. They, they're wild dogs that roamed the streets. They roamed Gehenna, Jerusalem's burning garbage dump. And, and so here come these dogs Verse 21, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And that's when you know you've hit rock bottom in the ancient world. The dogs were coming and licking your sores. Now now you're double unclean because you're already unclean. If you have open wounds, you're unclean. But now dogs licking you, you're now double unclean. And so what we see from these verses so far is that before death, we see a, an amazing difference between the men. An amazing difference. What a difference between these men. One is rich and the other is poor. One is clothed in purple and fine linen. The other one is clothed in sores. One is feasting sumptuously every day. The other is desiring just even some crumbs. One would be highly esteemed. The other regarded as unclean. And that was the situation before death. Now when you think about that, which would you rather be in this world? Which one would you rather be? But in verses 22 to 23, we're going to see an amazing reversal and we're going to have to start thinking about this differently than the people of the ancient world would have thought about it. To the original hearers, the Pharisees, Verses 22 and 23 would have been shocking. Because if you asked an Israelite in that day to end the story, they would have guessed that the rich man went to heaven and the poor man went to Hades. They would have assumed that the poor man was poor because he was lazy or because of his sin or because of his unrighteousness or because of all of it. And so this is a surprising reversal. 
Number two in your outline, the situation after death. The situation after death, verses 22 and 23. And this time we start with Lazarus. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom. So the poor man died, and and notice here that in contrast to the rich man, he wasn't buried. And and really, if you think about it, he he was probably just, just left to the dogs or thrown to the dogs. If anyone bothered with him, he would have been just dumped in Gehenna, the trash heap again outside of Jerusalem. Jesus used Gehenna as an illustration of hell. This rich man was, or this poor man, sorry, Lazarus, was despised by men, but he was precious to God. Angels came and carried him to Abraham's side. Now, the Old Testament described the future coming kingdom in terms of a giant feast. Isaiah 25, verse 6, for example, says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. We speak about this as the eschatological banquet, this future kingdom meal. We look forward to that meal every Lord's Supper. Luke 22 verse 17 says, Jesus took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, "This take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And when we think about this eschatological banquet, which is, which is at the side of Abraham where this man was carried by the angels, very often Abraham is pictured as being kind of primary, as having a seat of honor at this meal. And so if you look back at Luke 13, uh, verse 28, we've seen this in Matthew chapter 8 already, but Luke, we're going to try to use Luke as much as we can this morning. Luke 13, 28 It says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Verse 29, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Now to recline at table which must be like an English kind of phrase there, recline at table. We, I just feel like I wouldn't say it that way. But to recline at table is to eat. And, and to eat in this banquet is to eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets. And perhaps even to be right beside him at his bosom, which is, which is how Lazarus is pictured here, just like the Apostle John was at Jesus' bosom, this is, let me just, you can just listen, John 13, 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side, at Jesus' bosom. And so John is, is reclining at Jesus' bosom, now Lazarus is at Abraham's bosom. And the idea then is that Abraham, or Lazarus, Lazarus is reclining at a place of honor at the eschatological banquet with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and all the prophets. And I just kind of get some joy for this guy. Like he, he was so hungry. And now like what is it? he's at this amazing banquet. But the focus isn't on Lazarus the, or the joys of heaven here. The, the focus is not on the kingdom. The focus of our text is really on the reversal 
that the rich man experienced. And so we're only told enough about Lazarus' estate to know that he died and he's now much better off than he was. But verse 22 continues, the rich man also died and was buried. The rich man also died. And we can imagine a lavish burial, a lavish memorial service that his five brothers planned. You can kind of picture yourself at that service and, and all men would have spoken well of him as, as people are wont to do in, in settings like that. But death is not the end. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that, that comes judgment. And so the rich man in a moment went from feasting to Hades. Look at verse 23. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. He awakes and lifts up his eyes. What a, what a scene we have here. Hades is the Greek word for the, that's used for the place of the dead. And that word was used to translate Sheol in the Old Testament, in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Hades was used to translate Sheol, which was also in the Old Testament. Sheol was the place of the dead, and especially the place of the unrighteous dead. And Hades is basically a synonym for hell here. Hell comes from the Greek word Gehenna, which was used of the Valley of Hinnom, which is where the children were burned in pagan offerings and which eventually became the, the burning dump south of Jerusalem where people burned their garbage. And there was this reminder of the child sacrifices that, that happened in that place. And Jesus used Gehenna as a, a metaphor for hell, because hell is very often pictured as a place of burning or a, of a fiery judgment, which is exactly what we see in our text. If we want to get a little bit technical about what Hades is, Hades is a, a place of suffering and judgment for the wicked, where they go until the final judgment. And at the final judgment, they're going to be resurrected and then cast into the lake of fire, which is maybe more technically we would say hell. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so Hades is the place of dead before the resurrection, and before the lake of fire. But Jesus isn't getting technical about these things. He's just telling the Pharisees in this picture of Hades what is going to happen if they don't repent. And in Hades, this man lifted up his eyes. Now before that, I think we could say that his eyes were closed. Until that moment, he was blinded. 
Luke 8, 14 says, By the cares and riches and pleasures of life, this man was blinded. The love of the world choked the word. Moses and the prophets went unheeded. But now in in torment, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and now he sees Lazarus, and he sees Abraham far off, reclining at table. Now before it seemed like he never noticed Lazarus, before his, his eyes were closed to Lazarus, even though he was right at his gate. And what I think we can draw from this is that hell will awaken many people to things that they never saw before, that they refused to see while they lived. Now, the word torment in our text refers to severe pain. He says, I am in anguish in this flame, verse 24. And hell is often pictured as a, and described as a place of fire or burning. It's outer darkness where the, the smoke of that place makes everything dark. It's where God's wrath burns in punishment of sinners. John the Baptist had said that Jesus would gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn. Jesus will burn with unquenchable fire. That was Luke 3.17. The wheat and chaff are ways of of speaking about people there. And some are going to be gathered into the joys of heaven by the Lord Jesus. Others are going to be burned with unquenchable fire. Again, he will, the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. Isaiah 66 talks about hell. It says in verse 24, the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. Let's let's see what happens to those who rebelled against, against God. It says, their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Jesus picked up on this language in Mark 9, 43. It's Jesus. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Verse 47 and 48 say, if your hand causes you to sin, tear it out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, Gehenna, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, quoting Isaiah 66, 24. In Matthew 18, verse 8, Jesus talked about being thrown into the eternal fire. In verse 9, to be thrown into the fire of hell. In Matthew 25, 41, he, the king, which represents the Lord Jesus, will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is a horrible reality. It's an eternal suffering. A timeless penalty for transgressing against an infinite God. Now, men may scoff now, and they might ridicule the thought of preparing for eternity on earth, but then, on that day, then they will lift up their eyes, and they will weep and gnash their teeth in pain and in regret. And so the situation after death changes everything. The man who mocked suddenly begins to pray. He begins to pray, but, but it's too late. It's too late once you end up in that place. Once you die, it's too late to repent. And so we have one opportunity to prepare ourselves for heaven. And so we've seen the situation before death. We've seen the situation after death, a massive reversal. And again, we could ask ourselves, which would you rather be? 
Which would you rather be now? But now let's see number three, the supplications from hell. The supplications from hell. There's two requests here that the rich man, now poor, that he makes from hell. And we're going to call the first one the request for relief. Verses 24 to 26. Look at verse 24, first of all. And he called out. He called out, the rich man, now poor, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And this is a request for relief. It's, it, he asks for mercy. And this would be similar then, if we think about it, this would be similar to Lazarus on earth desiring to be fed with what fell from the table. And the rich man here, he asks for really the least imaginable mercy. He doesn't... He doesn't even ask for a whole drop of water. He, he says, send Lazarus to dip the, the end of his finger, the tip of his finger, not the whole finger, just the tip of his finger, in water and cool my tongue. And, and, and you think, how much water is going to sit on the end of a finger? You know, you think about, have you ever been hot and just thought, man, I could just sure use if you just dip the tip of your finger in water and just put it on my tongue, like, we don't, we don't ask for that. We, you know, how about a whole bucket of water? How, you know, how about get me out of this flame? But no, the, the man asks for only the crumbs of the comfort that Lazarus is enjoying. And he says, cool my tongue. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But the man is going to receive no mercy. In fact, the answer that he receives is only going to compound his agony. Look at verse 25, but Abraham said, child. Now let's, let's just stop there already. Abraham said, child. You know, earlier he, he had called out in verse 24, he says, Father Abraham. Now Abraham replies, child. And so this man had Abraham as his father, but he's in hell. And John the Baptist had warned about this very thing in, in Luke chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, I think the parallel for us here as we think about this idea that this man is a child of Abraham, I think the, par the parallel for us would be to think that you're going to heaven because your parents are Christian. I think that often happens with, with children. Children, kids, you, you need your, for yourself to decide to follow Jesus Christ. You yourself must repent. You yourself must believe. You must trust in Jesus Christ, you're not going to go to heaven because your parents are Christian. You need to be a believer. And so I think that's a warning for us. And, and Abraham reminds his child, his descendant, his offspring, verse 25, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. What a reminder this would be. All your good things, remember this, all your good things are over. You had them in your lifetime. Nothing good remains for you, not even a drop of water. 
And what a reminder this would be about a, a wasted life. You had all your good things and it's over. In your lifetime, you received your good things. And now, child, you need to pay the debt of your sin. Again, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And so in other words, Abraham says, remember that you're in agony. Remember that the saints endured their hardship on earth. Remember that it's over for them. Remember that Lazarus is being comforted. And remember that you are in anguish. And remember, verse 26, that besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Now, like we saw in the word moreover earlier with Lazarus, now we have besides all this. Besides all this introduces another element. Besides all this, there's more. And I think this might be the hardest truth about hell. Now what we've seen so far should be enough, but besides all this, add this, that that when you come to that place, when you go to hell, when you end up in Hades, there is no escape, there is no exit. No saint can come there to comfort you if you end up there. No repentance can deliver you. There is no getting out of that place. Besides all this, there is a great chasm fixed. And this is one of the most disturbing aspects of hell, is that it's a a place of hopelessness. It's a place of hopelessness. There is no hope. There is only the reminder of a wasted life and the agony in which one is in, and that there's no escape. Now, we can endure a lot if we know that it, it won't last long. But hell is forever. And there's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no crossing over. Now, someone might wonder at this point, how can a a good God create such a horrible place? And to fully answer that question, I, I, I won't be able to do it here this morning. But already the question itself assumes too much. How can a good God create such a horrible place? And again, the question itself assumes too much. It assumes at least somewhat that it's not good to punish sin when in fact it is good. The question, how can a good God create such a horrible place already somewhat assumes that sin is not such a bad thing after all when in fact sin is a horrible thing. Sin deserves punishment. Sin is why suffering came into this good world that God created in the first place. Sin is what brought God's goodness into question. And for him to ignore sin would not be good at all. In fact, if sin and sinners were not separated eternally from God and from his people, how would heaven not become a wretched place? If there was sin allowed in heaven, heaven would be a wretched place. And so God's infinite goodness is why there must be a hell. Because any other option would bring God's character into question. Because we would wonder if God was really good, if he was really holy, if he was really just. And if he was those things infinitely. If he did anything less than punish the wicked eternally in hell, we would wonder these things about our God. But remember too, as we think about this, those who are in hell are there because they refuse to acknowledge God. 
They chose to ignore him. They were not thankful. They did not honor him as God. They did not worship him. They chose their sin and they ignored God's splendor. They chose the world over worship. They chose the creature over the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Romans 125. Now our parable doesn't say much about why the rich man went to hell. It wasn't because he had money. It wasn't because he ignored Lazarus's need. The reason that he's there is implied in verse 30. It's ultimately because he refused to repent. He refused to heed the word of God. He refused to heed Moses and the prophets. And he wouldn't turn from his sin. He wouldn't turn to God. And little did he realize that the good things that he enjoyed in the world were actually from the God that he refused to come to. And now in hell, he is eternally separated from God, and therefore, he is now separated from all good. God is the fountain of all goodness. And I should note here as well that nobody has changed in hell. The rich man is not repentant in hell, even though he he asks for things. Nobody is repentant in hell. There is weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell. There is longing for deliverance from suffering. I think there's remorse in hell, but there is no genuine repentance. There is no regeneration. This, This man is not changed. He is still as wretched and sinful as ever. The people in hell are as, as wicked as they ever were and, and probably even more so because now the restraints of godly society and government are removed. And so people in hell continue sinning forever and their punishment then also continues forever. There's a great chasm fixed. There's no crossing over. There's no hope in that place. And the request for relief is denied and the denial only adds to the suffering of the rich man. And the realization that it's too late for him makes the rich man now think of his brothers. And so this is now the second supplication, and we're going to call it the request for relatives, verses 27 to 31, the request for relatives. Jesus adds this, it would, it would seem, to tell the Pharisees and to, to tell us that all we need, and this is good news for us, all that we need to avoid this terrible place that we've been talking about, all we need is the Word of God. And we need to heed it and repent. But look at verse 27, he says, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, send Lazarus to my father's house, verse 28, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. And so he begs and implores and asks Abraham to send Lazarus. He wants his family warned. He wants Lazarus to warn, to solemnly testify to his brothers. And he seems to think of Lazarus as some kind of servant of Abraham's. Send him to my brothers. You know, if, if, if Lazarus can't come here, then, then send him there. Give him, give him a mission. And so he doesn't seem to have changed his low view of Lazarus. He hasn't really, it seems from this, taken responsibility for his own actions that got him to hell. And he implies that neither he nor his brothers were sufficiently warned. But Abraham disagrees. Abraham 
disagrees with this thing. You have been sufficiently warned. Abraham said to him, verse 29, they have, your brothers have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the scriptures. But the rich man doesn't believe in the sufficiency of scripture. He doesn't think the word of almighty God is enough. The inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. To the rich man, it's, it's not enough. And he, he argues with Abraham in verse 30, no father Abraham. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear then. The rich man says, no father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Like the Pharisees, the rich man seems to believe that his brothers need a sign, a miraculous sign. If Lazarus came back from the dead, he says, they would repent. Now, perhaps this reminds us of another Lazarus, another Lazarus who came back from the dead. And to, and to see that, I want you to turn to John chapter 11. Go to John chapter 11 we won't read the whole thing, but start, we'll start at verse 43. When he said these things, Jesus, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done, that he rose somebody from the dead. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation and you can just skip down to verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They made, they made plans to kill Lazarus, who Jesus just rose from the dead. They're going to they're gonna kill him so he dies again. And this is really how the unbeliever responds apart from divine grace. You give them the word of God. They say it's not enough. They say it's not clear. You give them a sign and they're going to deny the sign and they're going to refuse to believe the sign. And if they can't deny the sign and they can't find a way around it, they'll even try to silence you or kill you. That was what our unrestrained wickedness would lead to. Luke 16 and verse 31. He said to him, this is Abraham speaking again. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so Abraham knows this, the Lord knows this, that if they don't listen to the word of God, if the word of God is not enough to bring them to repentance and faith in Christ, nothing else is going to convince them. No amount of evidence is going to convince them. And again, this just teaches us that men don't need more proof. Even in, in hell, the rich man doesn't recognize his own hardness of heart or that of his brothers. And he seems to think that his brothers would repent if they had more evidence. But what they really need ultimately is a new heart. They need to hear and believe and receive the word of God. And even Moses and the prophets spoke of the, the need of this new heart. 
Again, man doesn't need more evidence. He needs a, a transformed heart that's going to enable him to, to hear the word of God and believe. Now, the parable doesn't say much about why Lazarus is in heaven. It doesn't, it's not really giving us the gospel. He's obviously meant to, to picture a believer. And the fact that he's poor and afflicted in this life could be true of a believer, but, but some believers are well off in this life. I think the main point seems to be the massive reversals of fortunes in heaven. And, and again, Lazarus it really isn't the point at all. He, he hasn't even said one word in this whole thing. He's just in the story really to show us the rich man and what happens to him. The rich man had his good in this life and he went to hell forever. And if there's one thing that, that we can take away from Lazarus, I, I think it would be his name. Lazarus is the, the Greek form of the word Eleazar, and it, it means the one or he whom God has helped. And so the reason that Lazarus is not in that place of torment is because of what God has done for him. God has helped him. God has had mercy on him. The Father chose him before the foundation of the world. The Son paid the eternal and infinite penalty for his sin. God the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to respond to the gospel, to heed Moses and the prophets, that, the, that he would heed the word of God and repent. And so Lazarus was the one whom God helped, and, and that's really a, a picture of every believer. By grace we are saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, if you're here this morning, friends, and, and, and kids, again, I, I want you to listen carefully to this. There is no need for you to go to hell. We've, we've just been spending the last almost 45 minutes or hour thinking about the most wretched place in the universe. But there's no need for you to go to hell. You don't need to go to that place. Ask God to have mercy on you now. Now, if you, if you call out to God for mercy, he won't refuse you. And so you can avoid this place before it's too late, repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, for us, if, as we've been thinking about this place, I think it's for us, it's right for us to rejoice. If God has delivered you from this fate, if you are not headed to that place, then this is, this is a joyful thing for you. And I think we need to recognize as well as we, as we go forth, we, this, this text just makes us want to reach those lost people around us. And so we need to recognize that the word of God is sufficient, that it is the power of God to salvation. And so we need to take this word and warn people that, that they might repent before their time is up. And so rejoice and, and take the opportunities that you have to share this gospel, to, that we might be used by God to deliver people from so horrible of a fate. Well, let's pray. Father, we... Uh, Wow, what a, what a text we've looked at. What a place that, that you have designed to punish sinners. And we thank you that, that you sent your only son, your beloved son. That he would bear all of that for us. That he would, that he would take our anguish, that he would take our agony, that he would be tormented in our place that we could be reconciled 
to you, Father. We, we thank you for this gospel, this good news. We pray that, that you would help us to reach the lost. We ask that you would deliver lost people even in our midst here this morning, that you would save those who aren't truly saved and born again. And we ask that you would use us powerfully to reach people with this news, with this message. We ask these things, Father, for, for your glory, because we recognize that all of this has been designed, all of this gospel, all of this good news has been, been designed by you for your glory. And so we ask these things that you might be glorified through us and through the salvation that you give us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.